Hi, my name is Abby, and I'm a volunteer here at Recovery Radio. Did you know that September is National Recovery Month? This is a great opportunity for you to get involved by contributing to our fundraiser. Just go to recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. It's just that simple to become part of the solution. Hello, my name is Linda. I sincerely believe that anybody can hear me at least three blocks away if I turn up the volume. If anybody can't hear me, well, then that's, you're just deaf. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I found my first deaf person. So let me start in the usual way with this very unusual group. My name is... Wait, I have to do this right so you can say hello, Linda. I'm a grateful member of the Sunset... Or is it Sunrise? I never quite get it right. Al-Anon group in Tucson, Arizona. My name is Linda. All right, so we're going to have an interactive meeting, I can tell. I want you to know that I am extremely grateful for being invited. I must do the, the, uh, that little speech first because I had such a good time as a result of all the individual members of this incredible interim group. And I do believe that uh, God had a hand in this, and I have been um, with a gracious hostess who uh, can't tell a story to save her life. Um, any number of people who, um, you know, like I, are gamblers and put all our money in that pot hoping to win that beautiful, beautiful prize. Oh, you want me to speak into this? It's actually working? Okay. So I have to tell you that I am really grateful for the invitation because uh, Alamon has been such an important part of my life. Now, I am a storyteller by profession. I, I, I write for a newspaper right now, but I did have the pleasure of writing Alamon literature, and so my time in service at the WSO is a part of my story, but I think it's important for me to tell you what I was like when I got to Alamon because I seem to have an unusual story. And that is um, that I did not grow up in an alcoholic home. So you just have to believe me that I worked very hard at becoming a, a um, what, 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 do we, what do you call someone who's about to go into Al-Anon? <laughs> crazy is what you call somebody who's about to go into Al-Anon. So I got crazy on my own because I fell in love when I went to college uh, to be an attorney. I wanted to be a lawyer. And I fell in love with a white-skinned, blue-eyed, dark-haired Irishman. And my father told me before we married, and I thought he was going to tell me a little story about the heat that had turned on when I was just about 15. And I went off to college. Let me tell you, I, I wanted to be an attorney, but I also wanted to be connected to a guy. I wanted to have a life. I wanted to have a family. And, you know, I went to a Roman Catholic school, and, you know, you weren't allowed to have any heat on your own by yourself or, you know, and so you had to get married and you had to produce children as a result of the heat. And this guy looked like a good fire extinguisher to me. So I, I'm telling you that um, I did a number of changes because I wanted to be hooked up into this guy's life. And, and my father said to me, I do have to tell you, he said that um, it's been my experience that the Irish drink. 
And of course, what that meant was that I could no longer speak to my father about my relationship with my husband. Because I thought it was an unkind thing for him to say, and I certainly thought it was an untruth that was perpetuated by the fact that New York was settled by a number of Italians and a number of Irishmen, and they fought for jobs and for, for um, you know, a social position. And so my father, being from an Italian family, I felt that that was uh, an indication of his uh, ill will. So I judged him harshly for that. But what I want you to know is that I had a pretty successful teenage life. Uh, as I say, I got accepted to this program at college to be uh, in law school and have my last year of uh, college at the same year concurrently. And, and I thought, you know, I was pretty hot stuff. In addition to the heat, I thought I had, you know, a certain amount of intellectual stuff and I, I was going to go and be somebody. But um, around those tables at that Roman Catholic University, I, I learned a couple of things about uh, spirituality. And I did want to be a good girl, and I did want to go to heaven, and I, I mean, I really did. I remember thinking that it would, be, it would be wonderful to be the heart of the family, and I was more than willing to let my husband be the head of the family. Now, you know, for centuries, that kind of thing has worked. Uh, women today, if you're, you know, if you're under 40, you don't know what I'm talking about. But this idea of giving over to a man, uh, you know, worked. It worked, and, and people raised, raised children. And, you know, they weren't all from alcoholic families, um, in spite of their being Irish or not. But um, it, it only works if the head doesn't drink. I mean, there has to be some thinking along with some pounding of the heart. And I was a very passionate person. And I also learned at this Roman Catholic University that I was not supposed to count on anything to prevent, you know, the procreation of the faith. I was going to be, you know, a producer. Well, I learned that lesson very well. I didn't learn how to count well, though, which was the only opportunity they gave us to prevent having lots of babies. And so as a result, I had to come up with a program for myself. I was always a little writer, always wrote little plays. My mother was very kind and let neighborhood children come in. And, and then so, you know, I had this world of make-believe going from when I was a little child. So I had to write some kind of program for myself where I could morally practice a form of birth control that would be acceptable to the Roman Catholic faith. And so I came up with one. It was full of proof. It's called pregnancy. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, you don't have to worry about getting pregnant if you're pregnant. It's just, you know, one shot, that's it, you're pregnant. So I had, you know, 63 months of free thinking. I had seven children in nine years. Well, I didn't have to worry for 63 of those months, though. I laugh when I see the Allen on calendar. Whenever I see a calendar, I laugh, because I had all important dates on the calendar. And after I had had five children, I, I, I went to a police and I said, you just have to help me with some other plan. My plan is working in the worry department, but not in the prevention department. And so he said, well, they're doing, uh, they're doing something over at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in New York with a thing called the Basal Thermometer. And if, if you go and get in that program, you know, the church would, uh, would um, 
not look, you know, it wouldn't be a sin. It would not be a sin. So with this blessing from the priest off, I went to a program where I had to now have health counting. And so I would send my, uh, you know, thermometer readings to St. Vincent's Hospital every day, roll over, put that thing in my mouth, and just, that was it. And, and, then, and they would send me back a, a, a calendar that said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Maybe, uh, depends on how you feel, okay. I mean, it's difficult. So people would come to the house, you know, and, and they would open a cupboard to get ketchup, and there would be a calendar, you know, with this admonition, no, 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 no. This little red circle. So I, I, the other thing I did was um, when the head began to drink on a regular basis and, and my life began to go downhill, with all these little babies, and, and you know, I noticed that the head was not coming home regularly. And you know the story of alcoholism. You know, I spent a lot of what I call window time. Everybody knows this. I could see the road from the back windows in the kitchen. I soon took down the curtains because they got so dirty from that hand-holding business. You know, when I would wait for the head to come home, baby after baby after baby. You know, what, to make another baby, that was probably what was happening, but I, you know, I was only aware that I was doing this alone. So I had started out my life, honestly, as a, as a happy person in a, a family where I did get applause for the things that I did. I did get patted on the head. My father kissed my brother. We had, we had warm, loving times. You know, the country in the summer and, and the city life uh, in New York City because I was born in New York City uh, several years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because I, I have been in the Al-Anon program for over 35 years. And I'll stop doing the adding. <laughs> Thank God I've been for 35 years because I was, I was badly strained in the first years of my marriage to an alcoholic. So it had nothing to do with my placement in the family, although I was the third daughter, which you know, traditionally is a little peacemaker kind of person in a family, and the fourth was a boy, and so I knew that they were waiting for the boy, but, but you know, I, I managed not to wear a hand-me-down because I was always a little chabette. And what no, they had departments in the store that said Chabet. <laughs> so I you know, I had made lots of adjustments to my own life and I thought I could do it again. I remember that the first time that I went to gym in a public high school, you know, I was gonna take off my dress and put on my gym clothes, they made us do that and and that, that little label would show, you know, and, and I didn't stop eating or come up with a food plan because my food plan was to not wear the hand-me-downs from my sisters that, that they didn't get. So I had kind of written that little script. So I didn't, you know, I didn't amend my behavior. I simply got a pair of scissors and cut the damn label out of the corner. So I made these editorial adjustments to my life. And so when I got married to a man whom I adored, now I have to tell you, I adored him. And the drinking incidents, you know, are his to tell about, not mine to tell about. You all know what they are. They were frequent. It's a progressive disease. It got worse. Nothing I said, no script I wrote, no amount of pleading, cajoling, screaming, uh, sobbing. Oh, I made a place. 
I would get up in the middle of the night, this, I'm telling you about my own dementia, I would get up in the middle of the night, you know, I'd go down the hall and, and I would begin to sob. I mean, I would begin to sob. <laughs> you know, and make it louder and louder, thinking that he would hear me. <laughs> and then he would get up from the bed and come out to comfort me. I mean, <laughs> plays, I like plays. The worst play I wrote was The Death and Demise of the Head of the Household. I wrote a wonderful part for myself. And the only way that I recognized that I was going insane, now this is in a period of, look, the baby stopped after seven, so let's say this is a period of nine years. I am now, now so distracted, so far from sanity, that I am practicing in person, receiving the news from a state trooper, that the best of it is that he, he's killed himself, or somebody else has killed him, and I am now the victim that should have trainer and taken care of. Right, so, I mean, I rewrote it again and again. I made the guy handsome, I made the guy marry me, but I knew I was crazy the day I went down the hall, physically practice sliding getting the news and I didn't say it was a good actress I said it was a good writer but and sliding down the wall so my panties would not show If you really want to test dead somebody a test, you don't have the 20 questions for getting into AA. I have a very simple test for the appropriate nature of Al-Anon coming into your life. It's called the underwear test. You just ask somebody if, if you could see their underwear, would it look like this? Would it be white? Pure, right? I mean, we were the purest. They were the bad guys. We were pure. It would be white. It would hang at half mast. You know, the, the cotton would just hit the elastic in a few places. On our monitor, we wouldn't buy ourselves new underwear. Because a person is ready for Alamon. There's a female ready for Alamon. And let me tell you something. No one has looked at that underwear for a month. But if you've got that kind of underwear on, and under those kind of circumstances, you need this program. So, we'll have to cut to the chase because I, I eventually, it got so bad, and my heart was so broken because this man I adored told me, and often in a drunken stupor, which I did everything to prevent, I did all the wrong things. I brought aspirin, I brought warm milk, I brought the covers, you know, whatever. After he would get into bed just to prevent the hangover the next day. I mean, I, what did I know about enabling? I thought I was trying to protect my interests in keeping this man at home with all these things. And we were babies. And here's another thing that I did. I, 
I adored those children. I adored those children, and I was well taught by a loving mother how to nurture and protect children. I mean, she was home. My mother didn't work. She was home. She was the homemaker, you know, taught me how to dye curtains and how to make pretty things look, things look prettier and, and wallpaper and paint, and I was doing all those things. You know, I built a vanity under the bathroom, a sink. It was adorable. I mean, I could do anything, and I had to because this head never came home, and certainly, you know, not with the fire extinguisher. So I was in, a, a, you know, a period of, of rational waiting, I, and I, I yearning, I wanted something so bad, and I didn't think it was so terrible what I wanted. I just wanted some return of this incredible love that I had for this person who seemed to be disappearing. And so, you know, I began, uh, you know, an abusive pattern with the children. I didn't hit them. I lost them. And I don't mean that I lost their love and attention. I mean I went out with seven and came home with five. <laughs> I'm serious. I would get a phone call. Mom, who is this? <laughs> well, it's time. Remember you let me out to get the ice? Well, you drove right by. Again. Mrs. Mack, yes. We were wondering. Are you coming back to Frank? You know, as the manager of, the depart- of a, um, a local supermarket. Yeah, yeah, you know, Frank was three. Well, he's been putting prices on cans with us for an hour or so, and he's getting bored. And then I would say to these other children, how could you leave? How could you let me leave Frank? And you know, I think they figured that I was doing it on purpose. <laughs> because it was happening to them, too. Drive all the way up to take picnic tailpipes, get up to the back of the car. Oh, oh, you know, Mom, Chase, not in the car. And five boys and two girls. And somebody was always missing. So I went all the way back, and here's Kate sitting on the front step, crying her eyes out. And I have to tell you that Katie, who is um, um, in Al-Anon today, thank goodness, and I had the privilege of hearing her story, and she did say that on several occasions she hid under the bed when I was gathering everybody because she loved to see me jump when I saw someone was missing. Okay, so, you know, back to St. Vincent. So, you know, I had these five children and I, and I thought I was doing everything right and, and I got that funny little almond taste in the back of my mouth and I said, oh my God, I'm pregnant again. And I went to them and I explained to them that I had done everything and they were all these doctors sitting at this long table, you know, with this big, uh, uh, one of those windows, you know, to the street with St. Vincent's Hospital and you, you could see New York at the behind them. You know, and way at the end this doctor said to me, well, if you are pregnant, we suggest that you offer it up in prayer for the conversion of those souls in communist Germany. And so I point to everybody and say, there's the reason the, the Berlin Wall came down. Because it worked, obviously. <laughs> so I had Kate, and then I had a couple of others after that. So, but when I got to seven, I was done in. Here I was moving the children. I wasn't doing anything around the house. I get visited by the local parish priest. He's coming with cassocks, you know, with a, with a belt with um, fringe on it, tassels for a belt. He's coming to my, he's come to my house. It's noon 
I am in my flannel nightgown. You know, they wrote that idea about the flannel nightgown and the chenille robe, you know, now and on in, in, in uh, play forever after that because that's what we wore. You know, we had these little things, you know, the children liked to pull a thing and, and it would run. <laughs> and I thought, but I wasn't even wearing a bathrobe, uh, but I looked out the window and here's the parish priest with one of my children in hand. And that child had gone to school without lunches, and because he was the oldest, I had made him into my little husband pro tem, the father, right? He was eight or nine years old, and he knew that those school children had no lunches. It was almost a half a mile away, and he had come home to get the lunches. He probably would have made them and taken them back to school, but the parish priest saw him go by and so delivered him with his own story. Uh, he felt that, of course, I had made these lunches, and children being children, they'd forgotten him because he knew nothing about alcoholism. But I had a sick child in a big chair in the kitchen sitting in front of a vat of peanut butter I bought by the vat. And I had a big dangerous knife sticking out of it so that the kid could reach down and put some peanut butter on a cracker and feed himself while I was walking around, you know, tearing my hair out. Miss Priest came in with more gestures than I've made so far and told me the story of the lunches and engaged his tassel in that peanut butter knife and created a crisis from which I thought I would never recover. Do I tell him he has the knife or do I just let him take it back to the school with him? And if you think that was my worst worry, that kid in that chair told me also as an Al-Anon member that he remembered that incident and that was his worry too. Maybe we should just let him go back to school with the knife. <laughs> Turmoil, lack of structure, bad underwear, bad hair days, whatever you want to call them. My reaction to the lack of presence of a person who had engaged himself in addictive behavior, which included ingesting alcohol, those things had made me crazy because I had become obsessed with the behavior of another person who was obsessed in a behavior pattern. I was just as ill, but in a totally different way. And believe me, I, I don't use the word codependent as, they, as the professionals have come to call it because I wasn't dependent on it. I wanted it to stop. I did not want to pursue that way of life. I, I wanted to, to have it stop. And I thought that I was clever enough to make it stop on my own. I'd had a good upbringing, a good life. Why couldn't I solve these problems? I certainly loved him enough that I didn't know. Someone said, oh, you had all those children to keep him. I thought I had him. I mean, I had learned at those tables of, at, at that Roman Catholic University that Roman Catholics never got divorced. I figured this was it. You know, sink or swim, and I knew how to swim. And I was rolling up my sleeves and rolling up my sleeves, folks, until I rolled them right up over my eyes. That's called denial, right? To surrender, to stop, was to die. 
because I didn't know where. He left off and I began. Now I've told this story for these 35 years or so, pretty much the same way. And I was in Georgia and a little girl came up from Georgia and she spoke to me after I spoke and she said, Object, honey, you wasn't just Object, you was Posect. <laughs> The story of possession. That's what alcohol had done in my family. It had possessed me. So, when a terrible incident happened and, and there, were, there seemed to be nothing else to do except commit this man, you know, to the local booby hatch, which would mean I would have to drive the family and him there, you know, to visit him there every Sunday, I knew what driving with those seven children and me and my state of mind was like. I wanted to go to the library with them one day because the oldest one needed a book for school. And I said to him and the others, well, get in the car, we're going to the library. And they were a little noisy and bustly. They weren't really bad. They really weren't. They were so concerned with their mother's behavior. You know, I was kissing and kissing and kissing. But I was slipping and slipping and slipping away from them. So they, they were concerned, and so they were a little noisy. And the first thing that happened you know, in that situation before you go to Alamon is I had second thoughts about a simple decision. I couldn't make one without having second thoughts. And so I said to them, well, I know you think that I'm going to take these many children to a public place and have you behave like this and have everybody look at me and say, what a terrible mother I am. You've got another thing coming. You can just get out of the car. And then I would have the third thing, which was guilt. Oh, what kind of a mother are you both mistakes? It's a simple thing. The kid needs a library book. I loved learning. I wanted them all to go to school. I did homework with them. I did projects with them. You know, I was still operating at that level. And, and, and I felt so guilty, you know, I <laughs> And they would appear at the door, and I would say, come on, we have to go, get back in the car, you know, and they were a little noisier this time. And then I would have the next thing, which was despair. How are you going to manage this? How are you going to possibly manage this? So look, it's so late. Your father will come home, and if your father comes home, and dinner is not on the table, he'll have another excuse to drink, and I have to be perfect, and I have to change my clothes, and we all have to be bathed, and everybody has to be quiet to get out of the and on one occasion, I looked in, in the rearview mirror, having been sobbing on the, you know, in a very genuine way, on the steering wheel, and I looked up and there's this oldest son, still stuck in the corner in the back of the car. And I said to him, just what do you think you're doing? I probably swore. I said, just what do you think you're doing? And he said, you know, Mom, I know we're going to the library. I'm just skipping this turn. <laughs> Giant madness. So when the local doctor suggested that perhaps the problem was alcoholism, to which I said the first time, oh, no. <laughs> I did not want that to be the solution. I was giving a solution. How many people do you know just wish? Somebody would say to the alcoholic, you have a problem. The problem is called alcoholism. It's a disease. Don't feel any shame for this, but you have to fix it. And you, sir, are responsible for fixing it. And I know a place you can go where you can fix it and let your wife and your kids off the hook. And I said, oh, no. I didn't want it to be that script. 
I thought that script was low class. I did. So I had to go through a period, I think we went through another six months before the guys came in the blue suits. In New Jersey, AA people uh, do 12 steps in pairs, which one is for the husband or the drinker, right, the alcoholic, and the other is for the non-drinker. They have to be able to defend themselves from both because they're smart enough to know that both of us had been affected deeply. And they come dressed up to say, you know, we're back. We've been down there with you, and we're back. And we took him off to AA, and he didn't have another drink for some 20-odd years. But the guy came back from the meeting, the AA guy came back from the meeting, to which I was happy to see this man go, because I knew where he was going, who he was going with, and that he would be coming back to his loving wife. <laughs> And he said, you know, there's a, there's a family group called Al-Anon. Now, this commercial we've heard before. But remember, I did not grow up in, an, in a drinking home. Drinking was not a problem. So I was worse off because I knew nothing. And I was even more troubled because I thought I knew something. And so it was very hard for me to learn. And he said, you know, being a, a typical salesman, well, I can see that you're a smart person, number one, gimme, gimme, and that uh, you love your husband very much, too, and that you would want to do everything in your power to restore this man to his family life. Where is it? And I went. And when I got to that room and saw all those smiling faces and, you know, all those lovely people who had a measure of serenity, I hated every damn one of them. Because I thought they were stupid. And why was I going to have to be with these stupid people who didn't get it right and didn't know what they were doing? And here's this woman up behind the podium saying that she had been in the program seven years. Seven years? That sounded like a sentence. A prison sentence. What had I done that I would have to go and be with these people for seven years or more? What had I done? Didn't I do the law? Didn't I do the wallpapering? Didn't I go out and earn a living? At the time I went into Alamon, I was teaching school. I had seven children. I was teaching school five days a week, tutoring two children two afternoons a week, and working selling men's clothes at Dinwood's department store three nights on Saturday. I was frenzied. How was I going to work in these meetings? They they did three things that I had not been able to do for years. They, A, waited their turn to talk. (laughs) B, they raised their hands and offered their input, you know, free of charge, free of charge. And I thought, what are we going to do about money? What are we going to do about money? What are we going to do about money? And the third reason I hated them is that when they raised their hands, their underarm seams were fully sewn. And I was wearing that pre-Alanon underwear. So my life was held together by little gold safety pins, including at every juncture, every strap, every hem. My life in Alanon was uh, fraught with frustration. 
uh, uh, the group's frustration. Somebody, I'm your sponsor. Now, I could read, mostly I got to the place where I could only read about a paragraph, believe me, and ingest it. I was so crazy. But when they offered me all these books, I said, oh, you know, I got them all. I went, I got everything. I went out, you know, after all, it's like going to the library, right? And I got them all and I read them all and I saw him and his behavior in every single one of them. And I thought I knew pretty much what was going on. And she came over and she said, I'm your sponsor. And I said, I just read this thing, this pamphlet. I read 38 pamphlets in a week. I said, it's a question of choice. I'm supposed to choose you. And she, it's choice, choice. And she said, honey, you don't have any. And she meant it. I did, I wasn't well enough in my sickness to have any choice. And so they came and they rescued me in early Al-Anon. That, you know, it's kind of like, somebody's got to speak to that woman. <laughs> now, today, today, you know, I sit there and wince when somebody's speaking 15 minutes out of 45 and then one person's holding the fort, so to speak, holding forth and... And I know why, why you're not supposed to throw anybody out, because they didn't throw me out. And with years of up and down, in and out, recovery. You know, when they said that slogan, first things first, I said, they don't know. I wouldn't do it, but I don't know what's first. I was so smart. How could I not know what was first? It was so hard for me to let go of anything. So, of course, I kept my grief. I kept my resentment. But I kept coming. Eventually, after several years, of, of, I, I say to people, how many times have I taken the fifth step and the fourth step? You know, in the first seven years, I must have done that 280 times. Because every time we would have a meeting on a step, I would confess to something everybody knew. <laughs> they already knew it, so it was easy for me to say it. Oh, I have a terrible time being on time. They knew because I was always late. <laughs> I have a terrible time letting go of things. I think something has to be done about this. Something has to be done about this. That was my slogan. Something has to be done about this. So they had to teach me to literally hold on to a chair. Hold on to a chair at a meeting. Physically hold on to a chair for five minutes before I could bolt and go home after the meeting. That's what I did. I bolted. I would, you know, I... But the best thing that happened to me is that in my progress in the program of taking the first step and racing to the twelfth step because I wanted to tell everybody else what to do. I was a scriptwriter. I could tell when somebody else told me their story what they were doing wrong. You know, the most amazing thing happened to the very thing that, that I did too much of was the thing that saved me. Because I never missed my turn to share. And, and I confessed this the other day at a meeting, but, but I liked the sound of my own voice. I was the only one I listened to. I was the only one I could talk to for all that time with those little babies. So I did, I did live in this head, and I could talk myself into something, talk myself through something, and talk myself out of something. And I did that on a daily basis. 
every time I thought I wanted to run away, I talked myself out of it. So when, you know, I, the groups progressed, as, the, as Al-Anon progressed in its depth of understanding about human nature, now you have to figure, you know, the whole women's movement happened since the 1950s and 60s when I went to Al-Anon meetings. And, and then came, you know, the, the understanding of human nature beyond Freud. You know, everything wasn't about fire extinguishers. <laughs> and, and, you know, so this infusion, in the sense of the world, you know, we live in a world, you can't keep the world out, but it came, and thanks to, to the people who started, who kept saying, focus, focus, focus. I was so unfocused. So I was the one who was getting the biggest benefit out of the pressure to focus on the one problem. I wasn't going to save the world. I wasn't even going to be able to sow until I got this moment at a time of serenity. And so the, the groups insisted. My groups, I went to lots. People dragged me everywhere. Ultimately, because I was a writer and I, and I wrote, um, after several years, somebody said there was an opening at the World Service Office for a staff writer and that I should, write over, I should go over there and try out for the job. And God gave me that job. And the first real job that they gave me, they had hired me to help Lois write, Lois remembers, but had decided in the long run to use somebody from AA, which, by the way, Lois had the gift to tell me that she had a resentment about it. <laughs> so wonderful to be a person. She was a person. I knew her when she was a person and could tell somebody that. And she shared a lot of moments with me, but they, they gave me this project. They said that I was supposed to write. They had been gathering material for some time about... They wanted to write an inventory book, and they had the title, and they were going to call it Blueprint for Progress, and so they said, you know, we'd like you to write this. So for about nine months at my desk at the World Service Office, you know, I reviewed people's sharings, et cetera, and made up questions in, in order to take an inventory. So, of course, you know that you cannot write about something that you're not considering, and my focus was into this inventory. And so at the end of nine months, I remember I was going home from work, and I heard a train uh, whistle in the distance, and for the first time in I don't know how many years, the sound of that train whistle did not make me feel alone. I was very into sights and sounds. And, and I thought, I heard somebody say, why, Linda, you can do this. Of course, it was me talking to me in my head. But I listened. And I went home, and from that day forward, uh, it, you know, my children knew that something had changed in me. And... My ex-husband also, the alcoholic, knew that something had changed in me. And we began a very different kind of relationship. Um, we, we, we had some, some very good years, and we had some incidents, you know, and we had uh, the problems that life brings to you. But 
several of the children went to Alateen, and I was faithful to two or three Al-Anon meetings a week for a period of, oh, what, 20 years, and, and one of them was at the, one of the meetings was at the World Service office, and, and I got to hear people and see people and talk to people about the growing nature of the Al-Anon program and its value to people whether or not they were living with an alcoholic. And I got to see all the enthusiasms. I got to see the men come. I got to see the parents come. I got to see the adult children come. And I went to speak at a meeting at, at a, a convention that was rather large, and there was a contingent of adult children still very angry in the room. And I, after that, I developed a certain way of speaking to people. I recognized that, and I, I, that in every room, in every Al-Anon room, in every AA room, I'm sure, where there are four walls, there are whole sets of people at different levels of recovery. And you come upon them, you know, whether you identify with them, depending upon where you are. So, um, you know, I, I, was, I listened to people who were good for me and people who were not so good for me, but, you know, we were, all, we were working uh, with focus on the Al-Anon program as it was growing. And so I said to these people who were talking while I was talking, I said, okay, I said, you know, in every room, when you speak especially, when you're visiting, there's a third of the room just, I love her. You know, they don't know me, but I love her. She's Al-Anon, I love her. And, and you know, you're grateful for them because they, they tend to laugh first. And then there's another whole group of people who say, well, you know, I don't know her, but I'm willing to learn and listen to how the... Uh, disease of alcoholism affected her life and, and what the program has done for her, I'm willing to listen. There's another group. And then there's the third group that says, you know, they can't help themselves. Well, who the hell does she think she is? <laughs> and so I started taking off my glasses when I was speaking so I couldn't tell which third <laughs> was engaged. And I've had some wonderful times. I've been to wonderful places as a result of sharing what a jackass I was. And I think it's so important because I go to lots of meetings and I said to this group, listen, you grew up in an alcoholic family. I didn't. But we are both in this room today. So something must have affected us in a similar way that we have these resentments and these angers. And I propose that it's not someone else's behavior, but it's our reaction to the disease of alcoholism. That's why we're in this room together. A bruise is a bruise under any color skin. Anger and resentment and pain and sorrow and sense of loss of a loved one into a disease is the same no matter whether you're a male or a female. Whether you're gay or straight, same thing happens. Pain. Possession. <laughs> and if there was another name for Al-Anon, it would be let Go. That's the program of action for me in an Al-Anon program. And now you have, you know, a growing group that is now rivaling AA. So I didn't fail while AA was mad at us. Oh, yeah, I know you Al-Anons go to that church or lay your perpetual revenge. You know, all the jokes, tons of jokes, wonderful jokes. Uh, and, it, you know, if you're going to a meeting that's doing something for you, you don't mind. 
I certainly was so thrilled the day I wrote something and laughed. I couldn't believe it. You know, people said to me, is that a little evil laugh? And I said, no, it's just my understanding of the ironic nature of my behavior. Good gravy. The things that made me weep now make me laugh. Now I understand why people laugh in a, in a room. And, and I always thought that was so, such pompous behavior to laugh at someone else's problem. Obviously, they didn't understand the seriousness of my situation. And I got over all of that. Eventually, you know, the alcoholic in my life said, I don't love you, I don't like you, and, you know, I, I'm in love with somebody else, too, you know. And it happened to be, unfortunately, the AA woman. So then I had my lovely resentment against AA. I believe that it stood for Adulterous Anonymous. <laughs> because these women would come up to me, you know, when I was speaking, and say, oh, I just love your husband. <laughs> and I knew they were about to or they already had. Of course, that wasn't true, but, you know, it's true in a couple of cases. <laughs> so I had to learn how to, you know, to regroup. I only one place to go, and that was my Al-Anon meetings, where people knew me and knew what my weaknesses were. You know, so I got a sponsor, so I took the steps. So I worked in a place where all this Al-Anon information and experience was flowing. You know, it was like being... A nurse in a doctor's office when, when you needed medicine, free medicine. I got free medicine all the time. And I got in trouble because, you know, I opened my mouth. Each level, you know, of recovery brings you to another place where you're interacting with another set of people. And, you know, there's a local level and then there's a district level and that's meant to bring us back into the mainstream. And I met lots of people who loved Alamon but didn't love another single thing in their whole life. And I couldn't identify with them because I wanted to get back to life. I wanted to write, etc. But... I never got kicked out. You know, I never got kicked out. People tried their best, I know sometimes, to tolerate me. And people tried their best to kick me out. That's true. That's true. Because that's the nature of life. It's competitive. You know, I worked for a corporate entity. That was, you know, corporate politics. Were, you know, but I learned to use the program to identify each of these things. Oh, that's that, that's that, that's that. And there's always me and how I react and how I am going to deal with something. So I know you've sat in groups where someone finally said across a table, oh, I, I believe blah, 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 and you poked the girl or the guy next to you and said, <laughs> I'm telling her that for two years now she says it like it. That's because it was just revealed to her. And so we should say, you know, like they do in some churches, Hallelujah! <laughs> revelation! She's had a revelation! She's jealous! She's had a revelation! She's acted like a little snot! Was not her mother, was not her father. Because if it was our mothers and our fathers, and we can't do anything about it because of what they did to us, we might as well kick the bucket right now because it's done. It's done! But I like to believe, oh, I had a part in it. I wasn't aware. I wasn't mature enough. I didn't know. Lots of times I pled ignorance. I didn't know. 
But when I got to know, then it became my responsibility to do something about it. So I had had a wonderful life in Alamon, uh, um, what is it, a resurgence on a regular basis. Does that mean all my problems have ended? No, because I'm alive and these things happen. I will tell you that of these seven children, there's not one with an acknowledged or even been accused of by a brother or a sister. It's not one with a drinking or drug problem. Ooh. No, that's just the luck of the draw. That's the luck of the draw. I kept my children, but I lost my loved one. You know, I, I didn't want it to be that way. I wanted it to be a different way. I had a different script in mind. But the joy of life returned to me because of all these meetings and because of meeting new people all the time. And I, you know, have I met people now and on I didn't like? Yes. And they met me. They don't know anything about me. They don't like me. They may have heard about me or heard from me or read something that I wrote that they don't like. So every time I stand up, so I, I can be a target, but I also get, you know, two-thirds of the room. And anyone will tell you who speaks, or, you know, I, my grandmother was an actress, can you tell? But that's a pretty good audience. That's a pretty good audience. And that's what you get if you go to an hour on meeting or an AA meeting. I believe that. that you, get, you, know, you, get, you get some with you and some again you. But if you're going up, you're spiraling up, you're going to go through the same neighborhood, you're going to come to that damn go, you're going to collect your $200, you're going to collect the go-to-jail card, we can hope that that doesn't happen to anybody, but as long as this is the way you're going, you know, and if you buy some really nice, sexy underwear, then I will have done my job for the day, don't you think? So I, I think my time is up, but I want you to know something. I can't thank you enough for the turkey, for the food, for the fellowship, for the fun, for the singing. Oh, I did want to make a comment, an editorial comment about your list. I was reading this, and I said, boy, they have some nerve. They've got X-rated meetings there. And then I put on my glasses and the X stands for non-smoking. <laughs> you do a wonderful job here in Northern California. Even I think so. 